podcast. This is a little different. It's a conversation I had, a lengthy one, with Johan Hari, the journalist, uh, the author of Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, a brilliant analysis of the history of the drug war, and Lost Connections, Why You're Depressed and How to Find Hope, which is an unbelievably interesting and fresh approach to the question of depression and how to counter it. He also has a, a website, johanhari.com. Johan has become a, a really good friend because he's also an extremely diligent researcher and reader and actually one of the few people who ever read my own dissertation in a preparation for profiles for me of me like many years ago. Um, we stayed in touch and he decided he wanted for his own podcast to do an interview with me about my upbringing, my background, my politics, and specifically also faith and religion and the future. And we went on for a very long time in a very riveting, I hope, anyway, that's a little self-puffy uh, to say, but nonetheless, it was a really interesting conversation. And while I'm off sunning myself in the tidal pools and resting for the year, we thought we would give it to you. And this is part two of the podcast. You can listen to the first half of this conversation on the previous podcast last week. But to get to the denouement, here you are, Johan Hari interviews me at some length. Enjoy. There might be people listening to this who think that Santorum is merely the frothy mixture of faecal matter and lubricant that emerges from anal sex, but we should explain that Rick Santorum is also the leading Republican candidate for the presidency of the United States as I we do, speak. I'm still kind of in some kind of disbelief and denial. But on the other hand... Um, I did see something like this coming. I mean, I do, I, well, I, I was yeah. going to say that yeah. I've got here your book, The Conservative Soul, uh, which came out three years ago, I think, maybe even longer. Longer ago, I think, than that. Yeah. I can't and even remember anymore. In that, you identify Rick Santorum as the great theoconservative yes. ideological menace. I was just going to ask if you could read sure. just that, that little from there. Yeah. yeah, this is just your explanation back then. What is freedom, then? Santorum tells us, properly defined, this is, quote, Santorum, Properly defined, liberty is freedom coupled with the responsibility to something bigger or higher than the self. It is the pursuit of our dreams with an eye toward the common good. Liberty is the dual activity of lifting our eyes to the heavens, while at the same time extending our hearts and our hands to our neighbour. In other words, our founder's understanding of liberty ordered the, in ordered the individual toward a higher good defined in part by our Judeo-Christian roots. And I wrote, this is me speaking. Santorum here stumbles across one major obstacle to his view of America and of American freedom. It's worth taking a moment to consider it. The founders, to Santorum's dismay, did not write a constitution dedicated to the inculcation of virtue. In fact, what is stunning about the American Declaration of Independence and subsequent constitution is how morality and virtue are all but absent as a primary concern. The tripartite goal of the American founding was life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They did not write the pursuit of virtue or the pursuit of morality. So this is everything your conservatism is not, isn't it? Yes. It's Sarah Palin's conservatism. Let it's... me also point out that the thing that was removed originally was property. Mm. That the founders removed the pursuit of property as the core goal of the American independence movement. So... And they were, of course, Enlightenment figures, uh, deeply hostile to the kind of religious fundamentalism that Santorum believed in. And actually, their greatest error was in believing it would die out. 
I mean, they th they thought that kind of Puritanism was a, a 17th century uh, um, thing that, and I think what happened is that is that the founders were right essentially that that kind of religious fundamentalism would die out, but they were wrong in thinking that what modernity would create in this globalized, incredibly fast-moving, extraordinarily bewildering modern world, a need for it or something like it, for people lost who needed something uh, to cling to. Um, and they needed something firm to cling to. And the more you're lost, the more rigid and absolutely certain you have to be. I mean, I, I told a story, and you, you mentioned it, that, that when I was... Um, when I was going through my family troubles and felt bewildered in a new school, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I actually thought God commanded me um, not to step on the cracks in the pavement. And I would walk back steps to make sure. And that, to me, has always been a, a useful metaphor for me for what fundamentalism really is. It was because I was afraid and lost and wanted a God that would tell me exactly what to do so I would have no freedom at all. And what the American founding was about was saying, let go of that. This is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This word happiness. <laughs> I've always found it amazing that, that that kind of what sounds almost a banal, modern idiocy, happy, let's be happy, <laughs> you know, don't worry, be happy, is right there, happiness, and not, the achievement of it, but the pursuit of it as a goal. Not the pursuit of pleasure, pursuit of happiness. Now, maybe virtue, as Aristotle argues, me makes you happy. And I think, to a great extent, it does. Uh, um, and I think um, that's what it's about. Um, but no, Santorum is, uh, is deeply afraid and also believes in the power of government to dictate and control people's lives. Um, in the most intimate details. I mean, he, he believes in principle um, that, uh, that uh, the state has a right um, to control what you do in your bedroom, specifically. He, he, he believes the state has a right um, to dictate even your sexual positions. He believes what it has... What positions is he in favour of? There's only one position allowed. Right. I remember once having a rather hilarious conversation in retrospect with a Catholic priest when I was really trying to figure out um, what the difference was between an infertile couple having sex with no possibility of procreation and a gay couple having sex with no possibility of procreation, given that the Catholic Church has conceded that homosexual orientation is as involuntary as infertility. Um, and his answer was that in the missionary position, you look at each other's eyes and don't look at the rest of the body um, so that you don't get distracted by physical desire and it's pure love. And somehow you come... Of course, the woman doesn't come at all because... Uh, 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 it's uh, not her job. It's not her job. That's not what it's about. Yeah. Whereas um, you can't see the guy's eyes when you're fucking him because you're fucking him from behind. We need to explain some positions well, to I know this, this yeah. I, 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 For a moment there, and I was there with my friend Patrick, the, the dead one, <laughs> Um, the now dead one, and I remember thinking, I, I nearly said, you know, 
<laughs> um, Father, you know, you're really perfectly possible. Uh, I mean, seriously, if it's really coming, what, what's the point at this point of trying to say that? Um, and my favourite, by the way, my favourite, um, uh, you've got it right here, my favourite part of the index um, of the conservative soul um, is, uh, is, is on the second page, um, uh, which is um, clitoris, purpose of, page 86. Now, my point about that was, what the fuck is the clitoris doing there uh, when procreation is entirely possible without it being stimulated in the slightest? Why does a woman have that incredibly pleasurable part of her anatomy which seems to be utterly connected to sexual desire and utterly unconnected to procreation. But one of now, the, the answer yeah. they would give is that um, simply that's a, um, a faulty penis. <laughs> Whereas, of course, the penis is a, is a faulty clitoris, as we now know in the development of the fetus. Um, see, my point about natural law, which I'm interested in, because I do think, actually, that that, that it's hard to get rid of nature entirely in understanding morality, especially in things like sex, you know. I mean, obviously, for example, seems to me, um, to say that sex has nothing to do with procreation is as idiotic as saying it, has, it can only be to do with pre- sure. procreation. But, and so there's some sense in which they're right, except they're basing it upon 13th century biology. And we know that's not true. We just know it's not true. If it's not true, uh, it can't be what God... God is truth, if nothing else. But wh- Therefore, Darwin has to be compatible with Christianity. Um, or Christianity is a lie. Well, I'm with you on the last bit, but... One of the reasons, but one I of the reasons, was a conditional. It was a conditional <laughs> subclause for all that. What, what, what are, but what are, the, what are the reasons the American? And you don't believe Christianity is a lie, Johan, because you do believe that loving one another is a wonderful thing, and you do believe the forgiveness of others who have done you harm. But that's to helps take. But that's to you. pluck two ideas out of Christianity. I mean, it's also an idea held by a lot of Christians that Tuesday follows Monday. I don't think that's a Christian idea either. Those ideas are held by... Those ideas pre-existed Christianity. Human beings thought them before. They'll think them after. Indeed, this is essentially Britain where we are now. Forgiving those who hate you? Do you think there was no forgiveness before? Loving those who hate you? Loving your enemies? Do you think people... I mean, I can... Well, I do my best to do do that, and I'm post-Christian. Do I think that, that idea was de novo from Jesus? No. Do I think that he said it with a conviction and understanding and lived it in a way that so staggered the people around him that he changed human consciousness? But that's not a theological claim. Tolstoy did that as well. And we don't think Tolstoy was a messiah. And Tolstoy really did inspire people with the power to do that. But if salvation is about the presence... Gandhi, in fact, Gandhi, we don't think Gandhi or Nelson Mandela were um, quasi deities or or supernatural figures. No, we don't. And they did exactly that. Uh, yes, but I think you would find that, um, uh, let's take Martin Luther King, that, that, that he also, non-violence, that, that core is, you know, that, that is a counterintuitive notion of what a human being should do. It's against our, ne- our nature. It's, it's, now, so where can it come from, if not grace? I don't think it's against our nature. If human beings had not had some altruistic impulses, they wouldn't have survived in the no, context no, it's of not altruism. Up. It's not altruism. It is, to, it is to be nailed to a cross and tell them, forgive them. 
they don't understand what they're doing. But that no, is a step beyond altruism. And it can be a inspiring and beautiful gesture, but I don't think you need a supernatural claim to be inspired from? by that. It comes from a human mind, an amazing human mind. It comes from the same place that Shakespeare's sonnets comes no, from. It comes from the same... It's not a mind, it, 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 because a mind is something that thinks. That was something that felt. But a and mind feels as well. Shakespeare's sonnets are soaked in feeling. Yes, and of course, but, uh, and because the mind, the brain is all we have to, to express any of these things. But I do think a thought is separate than a feeling and that that feeling of love for those who are have torturing you, um, a love for them, um, is, 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 is taken, taking grace to such an extreme degree against nature such as loving the white supremacists and letting them bulldoze you and harass you and lock you up and, and turning it around and saying we have more power because we have accepted the truth of self-giving than you who think that power is control over others. That, yes, it's an idea. I agree with It's every, an argument. Yeah. I think you'd agree with me about it. Absolutely. And I think you'd also agree that Jesus... Uh, clearly stood for that. Um, he didn't even defend himself. He chose it over even defending himself. But none of that involves a supernatural claim. I agree with every step of that. But none of that involves a supernatural claim. A human being who does an extraordinary and noble thing. Jesus said it did. Jesus said it comes from my father. Um, but a human being can behave in a noble way based on a mistaken idea. Absolutely. But so what I, we if, can imagine that someone could do something not, very noble motivated by Scientology. I'm sure that no, it's not noble. No, and no Scientologist is going to allow themselves to be crucified and perhaps and, and uh, I was about to say a terrible thing, I won't yes, say. You were. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. I think I know what it was. Sorry. Anyway. I take that thought back <laughs> without even expressing it. Sorry. Um, I think what I'm trying to say in a in a in a in a way that's because we're expressing ineffable thoughts. It is that I believe that the universe behind the universe is actually something else other than matter and nature, and that that thing is God, and that it is the condition of all of it, and that, that God is at, his, at its purest essence that extreme form of love, which is a transcendence of everything, including death. So that even if Jesus did not rise from the dead, literally, as people said, he overcame death by embracing and forgiving those who killed him. And that is an amazing achievement for human beings. But what you're articulating now is a warm and poetic deism, basically. That's not Christianity. Christianity contains substantive... If, we're gonna, if it's going to mean well, Jesus, substantive Well, Jesus, one has to remember, was not a Christian. Sure. He was Jesus. Um, and and the many, many, many attempts of other human beings not as great as Jesus to do that. But if you go and look at St. Francis of Assisi um, or look at Father Michael Judge, you know, in New York. Um, now, Father Michael Judge, you know, when AIDS hit, he was a gay man, a Jesuit priest, and would go to St. Vincent's Hospital when the first thing happened, when the thing was horrifying. And, uh, and the people the young men with AIDS in those clinics would see a man in a, in a, in a religious robe and, 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 
and, and scowl. Some even spat. Some even just told him, don't let that man ever come near me. And, um, and he would wait till they were asleep. And he would go to the bottom of their beds and he would rub their feet. And uh, that's, that's God to me. But I could give you examples. Like I know, and there have been Bernard secular Kushner, people. Bernard you know, yeah, yeah, founder yeah, yeah. of Medicine for Saint Frontier, an atheist who performs extraordinary altruistic acts. No, but there's a... Again, altruism, I think, I think even you would concede altruism doesn't capture no, what's going I, I on there. There is a extraordinary human, kindness. Human, a human kindness, mindfulness, as the Buddhists would say, um, deep connection with the human, what we would call soul. I mean, do you think a soul exists? No. Well, I mean, I think it can be a lovely metaphor. But no, I don't think there's any actual existing thing called a soul. But just to go back... I do, I, I think it's... And that's why I love you. <laughs> so I and love I, you even without a soul, Andrew. Well, I hate myself, but I love you. <laughs> no, I'm because... Because what I mean by soul, let me tell you what I mean by it, is, is I mean by it not all that you do, all that you physically are, but you, Johan. That's who I love, you know? And when I went through my crisis of, of faith and of uh, my one 15 minutes of, 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 of terror, uh, which is when, uh, on my birthday, after my diagnosis, it was only a month and a half, walking through the dunes in Provincetown, the end of Cape Cod, and fell to my knees and thought, I'd never thought the force behind the universe didn't exist. Some force behind the universe must exist. I just thought for 15 minutes that it was evil, that it was just nature. And nature, red in tooth and claw, is evil. I mean, it can be brutal. Just look at planet Earth. It's all about survival. It's all about power. Um, uh, but when that dinosaur in the tree of life uh, exercises an act of compassion, um, and when, after those 15 minutes, I heard, I heard in a tone of voice, Andrew, Andrew, he spoke my name. Uh, that was God. Essentially, you had a moment where you basically had, you know, the Inuit religion. I spent some time in the Arctic a couple of years ago, and the Inuit have the only religion anthropologists have ever discovered where they believe there is a God, but God hates them. And all you can do is stay out of God's way. That's their faith, right? Just avoid him at all costs. And when you go there, you completely understand why. Yes, because, yes. my God, it is such a brutal landscape. Yes, yes. And you were in your own incredibly brutal landscape. You were in your equivalent of the Arctic. Yes. You I, were in a really shitty igloo. And I got to yeah. the point where I thought maybe he's evil too. Yeah. Yeah. But I can't explain. Well, maybe you could. Because if I believed that, I would have despaired. But people do despair all the time, you know. They give up. They kill themselves. They... Or they, worse, they don't kill themselves, they give up and they carry on living. Um, uh, but all I can tell you, Johan, and I'm not lying to you, and I, there's no reason for me to lie to you, is that I believe I was lifted up by something stronger than me and outside of myself that loved me, not for anything I'd ever done or any, anything anybody ever thought of me or any skills I had or any physical attributes I had, but for something that was me. And that I call my soul. You, you have this beautiful image in, in Love Undetectable, one of your books. Um, my favourite of your books, actually. 
Thank where you. you describe being diagnosed with HIV. This was, of course, people forget this now, this was a time when that was a death sentence. You were told you had, what, six years? You have this roughly, they didn't know, you know, it was varied, but that was roughly it, yeah. You have this beautiful image where you describe, you say it's like that moment when you're sitting watching a movie in the cinema and the screen goes out of focus yeah. and you're waiting for the picture to come back into focus and then you realise it it's never, never yeah. And you have to adjust your sight to living in a new world. Um, so I just want to give the scene to this a little bit. So you, you'd, you'd become the editor of the New Republic, the most influential political magazine in the United States at that time. You'd become phenomenally successful. And controversial, I might And say. unbelievably controversial for reasons we won't go into, <laughs> no, but suffice to say, unbelievably controversial. You, you'd really, you know, you were holidaying in Hyannisport, the Kennedy home with the son of Bobby Kennedy. You were at the absolute, you were modelling for the Gap. You were at the absolute centre of American life. And then you have this unbelievable crash. You have this diagnosis. And it must must have been unbearable. It 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 it, it, it was um, terrifying, um, and uh, it was also simultaneous with my close friend uh, being diagnosed within the same six weeks and di- caring for him for two years and watching him die in front of me. Um, the week virtually normal was published. Um, one thing I always promised to Patrick was I would be there with him when he died, and um, I was uh, my first book was published. You know, it was this big book, and I was um, doing the book tour, and I was traveling from San Francisco to Seattle, and I suddenly get a call in the old days on the phone, the back of the, the back of the um, airplane seat from his friend Chris and he said Andrew I think for some reason things I'd just seen Patrick the week before he seemed okay although he'd, he'd looked at me in such a way as, in a way that really affected me as if he'd given up and he said I don't know but um, I think things may be things, things may be happening more quickly than any of us understood and I said what do you mean he said well I talked to the doctor and they said it could, he could be fine but he could be dead within 48 hours and we had a, we had a, we, I was traveling to Seattle for a huge, big public meeting on marriage rights. It's the first book arguing for gay marriage, which he believed in. And he, he edited virtually normal page by page. I have his manuscript with his notes. And um, I canceled the whole tour. And I got to Seattle and, um, I mean, the book, the book agents was like, what the fuck are you doing? I had a, they had this thing at the Chateau Montmartre in Los Angeles. They had, I was on every major TV. They had, they had gone all out with this book. Uh, you recall, it also came to England with it at the time. And I just went back. I just said, it's all, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, I turned around the airport, got back, got there within three hours of him dying and uh, the first thing I said to him he had a respirator in his mouth uh, and I said you fucking ruined my book tour (laughs) and even though he had the thing in his mouth he smiled his mother you know he was from the panhandle of Florida he was from the deep south Uh, um, and uh, where am I going with this um 
forgotten now. But anyway, um, uh, he, we were all there when he, all his five closest friends came from all over the country to be with him. And he waited until we were all there. Um, and uh, he's still with me. That's what I mean by soul. He's still with me. And I mean that really, almost empirically, with me. Um, I don't think he's gone. And I think that's how the people who knew Jesus felt. And I think they saw him in the strangest of places. Um, and they knew he was alive. And they knew he had transcended death. And if I would try to explain what I mean by the resurrection and the incarnation, it would be the entrance of that kind of love into human life and human, human living and its permanence. And something incredible comes from this horrific trauma. So you're one of, you know... Oh, I'm three, sorry. Thank you. I got no, off track. 300,000 people, 300,000 Americans died at that time. And for me, the most heartbreaking passage in all your writing is when you describe that when you were diagnosed with HIV, your first thought was, I deserve this for being gay. And this sparks the writing of something that I, I think it's fair to say really had a, a, a world historical significance. You write a book called Virtually Normal that is the first book to make the case, the first person to make the case for gay marriage. And something in all your story, we've been reconstructing it, I think this is the passage that most people would now find, if you were to play it to a 17-year-old today, would find incomprehensible, which is that, OK, everyone would expect the right attacked you, the Rick Santorums of the world attacked you. What seems incomprehensible now is that you were viciously attacked by the gay left yes. in, in ways that I really urge people to actually, I'll put some links on my website, really are staggering to read now. You know, that you were arguing basically for a shift, a quite simple shift in the gay world from the logic of saying I am what I am, which was an assertion of difference, to I am what you are, saying we're the same as our heterosexual brothers and sisters, we should be treated exactly the same. Virtually Normal, when I read it, had an incredibly, as you know, it's how we first met, had an incredibly powerful effect on me. And I thought this is a, you know, this is a kind of, this is what I am. This is who I am. This is what I can show to people and say, ah, oh, okay, that's what I am. You know, I'm the same as everyone else and I want to be treated the same as everyone else. And of course that means some gay people won't get married, just like some straight people don't get married. You know, I never, it was never about coer, I never understood this, it was never well, about coer. Remember, I, when I came to London and was, yeah. you know, were you there? I forget. I no, was but at, it was when I first became aware I, of you. Yeah. I was at the, um, this huge meeting they had at the, um, what did I say, it was some big public hall. Peter Tatchell stood up, yeah. actually. And said, um, I'm sorry, but I think you're part of a right wing, um, you know, right wing agenda of imposing heterosexist patriarchal assumptions on us and destroying our freedoms. And I reject the right to marry. I reject everything that it means. Um, and he got this huge round of applause. And this is, by the way, I just come in from Patrick's memorial service. <laughs> And I said, well, I'm sorry, Peter, but um, I'm, I hate to tell you this, but you, you, you don't reject the right to marry because you cannot reject the right to marry because the right to marry has never been offered to you. 
you are currently regarded as beneath the choice. Wow. I want to give you the choice. Well, the, just... and, and, and it's so great now that Tatchell... I mean, I find it wonderful. I'm not saying that in a... Because I understand where he was coming from. I really do. Um, because the first form of liber- liberation had to be... Had to be, I think. We're different. We have to protect ourselves and build sure. a community. But AIDS made that clear to me. Look, I mean... You don't realize that gay people are human until you watch one die in front of you. You know? The, the, the prologue to that preface, to that book, Virtue Normal, is the date I found out I was HIV positive. Um, it's a little sign to myself and to my friends of why I wrote this book. I wrote it for Patrick. And then I wrote my second... Then I dedicated my second book to Patrick. But... Uh, um, it seemed to me that if we had endured such indignity, it was important to, to affirm our dignity. And also that we needed straight people to, to help us. If we constructed a ghetto and this, a disaster happened and we hadn't built the relations with the wider world, how are we going to get the scientific research? How are we going to get the political muscle to try and get money funding? How are we going to, you know, ha- we had to engage in a dialogue. But- you're being too modest if we give the listeners the impression that all you faced was Peter Tatchell standing up at a public yeah, no, meeting. No, no. I mean, I was, I was picketed. Um, well, a group called the Lesbian Avengers yes. called for you to be killed. Well, that, they'd had posters with my face in crosshairs. Yeah. I was, where are um, the Lesbian Avengers now, I wonder? I don't know where they are. They're I almost was, certainly married. Probably, yes, because there's a high proportion of lesbians. And that's the other thing that happened during the tour. That Eventually, over the night, and I then, from then on, for 10 years, I did an anthology on same-sex marriage. I went on every single TV show, blah, blah, blah. Um, I'd made the case, first of all, I might add, in 1989, before I was positive or, um, I mean, it, it just because it seemed a sensible argument. But the argument evolved from there. But yes, I do think the marriage... My passion about that came out of um, uh, of the AIDS experience, and the the hostility of the gay left was brutalizing at the time, and it extended, as you know, to to demonizing my personal life, to calling me a hypocrite when I wasn't, um, to policing every part of my life, and to smearing me at every possible opportunity to being basically removed from any role in the history of the gay movement. I should just explain uh, that they, they that, that just very briefly, that you had a... a, a, a personal yeah. ad on the internet saying, I'm HIV positive, um, looking for other HIV positive guys to have sex without condoms. And, uh, and I'd actually written in Love Undetectable yeah. the transformative yeah. moment when that happened with one of my oldest friends who'd survived and just how incredibly transformative it was in overcoming fear and and I've been on so many dates when you got to the point at dessert when you told him you were HIV positive and that was it I I wanted to find other people who were HIV positive and there was absolutely no question of hypocrisy here you are very you unequivocally clear in love undetectable that you were not holding yourself up as a model of monogamy you say yeah. explicitly and repeatedly yes, but these fuckers claimed that because you were arguing that monogamy should be an option for gay men that they were right in outing really every part of your private life in the mo- they sent it and to I your mother and I was single I was single yeah, it's extraordinary <laughs> the level of the viciousness just to read Richard Goldstein uh, who's a kind of gay left 
Fringer, um, who I think disgraces the idea of being a gay left winger, but anyway, called you Rush Limbaugh with monster pecs and said you want to solve the faggot problem by urging gay men not to act like fags. There was this constant claim that you were somehow trying to annihilate gay people just by saying they should have the right to get married. I, even now, I mean, I'm the not... The Gay and Lesbian Review, the editor of the Gay and Lesbian Review, which is the only, was the only literary magazine, reviewed Love Undetectable with the following sentence, if you hate gay men, you will love this book. That seems to me genuinely incomprehensible now. I, I don't understand what that's... Is it that this is in the middle of a... You know, so many people are dying all around them, there's a kind of hysteria. I don't understand where that came from. I think um, you'd have to ask them, um, but I think that uh, at some level the crisis was so great with AIDS and the, 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 the trauma so profound that anybody that stepped out of line an inch... Look at what happened to Randy Schultz. Now, Randy Schultz, for me, we should wrote just And the Band yeah, Plays yeah, On, yeah. and he also wrote uh, Conduct on Becoming, the two great books... Um, and he had and was a was loved the bathhouses in San Francisco was always there, and before he died, he reached out to me during this whole thing and said, "I'm with you, Andrew. These people are what I call lavender fascists, and you just have to carry on." And and I'll, I'll say this, Johan, I'm getting back to the religious stuff. There was a moment during that when I really felt as if I had been basically. Um, Look, they, they, I, I, I don't want to use the, I, I was splayed out, really, as a human being uh, for mockery. And I felt completely obliterated, really, as a person. And one night that really came through to me and Jesus came to me and said, this is good for you. This is good. Love them, accept this. This is part of what. This is part of what actually, it means to be a Christian, not to be perfect, not to have, not even to be. Um, you know, I'm not particularly. I'm not particularly proud of putting a personal ad with my naked butt on it. Um, you know, I'm not ashamed of it either. But I'm, you know. But he said, look. But but he said to me, this is what it means to be a Christian, and to know this means nothing. It doesn't matter. You don't matter. Your pride, your your dignity, your sense of um, reputation means nothing. If you've done the right thing, if you're doing it for the right reasons. Um, this is a good thing to happen. You see, the, what Christianity is also an, about is suffering. And it is about uh, the cross. And it is about accepting that real change or real challenging of society will mean um, that, you, that there will be... Um, now, I'm trying not to sound pious in all this, but I'm just saying that... Uh, there's some strange connection between suffering and uh, and salvation. This is a very rare situation where somebody articulates an idea, a political idea. It is absolutely reviled from both sides, right. and they live to see it become the consensus view very rapidly. So you first met this argument in 1989, right? And then you get married. <laughs> so. 
Let's just imagine the Britain in which you first make this yeah. case, right? Margaret Thatcher is the Prime Minister. It's the height of Section 28, a law banning the promotion of homosexuality in schools, right? Just rampant homophobia, indeed, you know, in the middle of a plague in which gay people appear to be dying all around you, and the lesbian Avengers have got a contract on your life, yes. right? It's and it. fast forward to today, right? Yes. And probably and, the, yeah, and I'm supposed to be dead in six years' time. <laughs> exactly. Okay, yeah. just so, throw that in for the minute. Exactly. Fast forward to now when the Conservative Prime Minister of Britain, David Cameron, virtually word for word quotes your Conservative arguments for marriage in his party conference speech and gets applauded by the audience at Conservative Party I Conference. Mean, As we say, virtually all the people who critic all the gay people who criticized you are themselves now married. People like Matthew Paris, a nice guy who said this was a crazy idea, is married now. He said he disagreed with every single word of yeah. virtually normal at the time in a review. Yeah. Which I actually took my breath away because I thought. That's really an extreme position to take, Matthew. He's a lovely guy, <laughs> but really, he Some was very the nice about and the book. And the as well. He, yeah. He, he was, yeah, 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 right and left. Um, and uh, it's, it's, yeah, it doesn't happen very often in a very short lifetime. I mean, I'm only 48. Um, uh, and then to actually, and then, of course, I always thought I was too damaged uh, emotionally and sexually to ever construct a loving relationship with another person. I remember giving a speech saying, it's too late for me. I'm too fucked up. <laughs> um, to, meet, to meet at the sleaziest dance party imaginable, <laughs> the Black Party in New York at 4 a.m. in the morning, the uh, man who I instantly realized I was going to be with for the rest of my life and whom I'm still <laughs> crazy about um, and live with. And uh, I'm a lucky man, Johan. I'm a lucky, lucky man. I wish, I wish sometimes I'd better... He said, when I got really desperate in those AIDS days, I said to myself, um, if this ever gets better, don't ever, ever be upset about petty little shit like... Joe Scarborough called you something on Morning Joe or some dickhead wrote a tweet. If you ever get worried about stuff like that, you will have forgotten the one truth this whole experience taught you. And, and, and yet here I am getting upset by a tweet and getting uh, worried about the traffic on my blog or something like that. Um, but that's another part of who we are. You know, that's another part of, of being human. But every now and again, I then go back to that and remember that. And, and feel a sort of strange indifference to it. Um, which is why I think, to tell you the truth, my conscience and my, my mind is moving, kind of has moved um, away from doing what I'm currently doing into some a different direction. What do you mean? I mean, it's just something we've talked about a lot, but just yeah. to explain to the... Well, this is a very... I haven't so, talked to many people. I've just talked to my husband about this, but I, I, I want to... Um, I want to go into religious life, I think, and leave journalism altogether. <laughs> what kind of religious life? I don't know. I, I really feel a very powerful conflict right now. Um, partly it might be writing this book on Christianity. Um, it might be just uh, taking a year to be quiet. Um, and listen for a change instead of talk. Um, I have obligations now that would 
prevent that from happening. But for how long? Well, I have a contract. I have I have obligations. I have people who work for me. Yeah. Sure. Um, and I'm definitely you know I have a contract for fucking eight years uh, with the Daily Beast. But uh, um, I definitely feel a pull to withdraw completely. Well, there was a period last year, I can edit this out if you don't want me to say it, that, that you know, you were really, you work harder than anyone else I know. And you, uh, really, and I know people who are, you know, doctors in emergency rooms who work insanely hard. And there was a period last year where you were really working yourself into the ground. You were making yourself very ill. Yeah, I was. And I was very worried about you. You were. You were very sweet about it, but I, I was some. Yeah, I mean, I, I my friends became very concerned. Um... Well, it was, a, it was a mania. You were in a manic state. And I understood when the mania, when it was, say, the middle of the Green Revolution in Iran, and you were... But yeah. it was like you were... You were basically living at the speed of a Twitter feed. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's similar to the mistake I made, just a kind of manic, you know, kind of... And in a self-destructive fashion. Yeah. Uh, well, let's self... I see, self-destructive is not true, because I don't want to destroy myself. I want to punish myself. That's an That's interesting a distinction. It's a, it's a diff- <laughs> Tell me it, the difference. Because if you destroy yourself, you can no longer punish yourself. <laughs> um, and I do have like waves of self hatred, um, and which I think obviously come from psychological origins of of, of all sorts of things. But, but how um, could you not, with where you were from and the inheritance you had? You know, did you ever read that? I know I gave you that book, The Velvet Rage, yeah, uh, by Alan Downs. I, I recommend to people. I was supposed to read it on my holiday. I should which explain was it. Yes, I should explain that this is a book about the harm that's done to young gay kids by homophobia and how they grow up, how their personalities are shaped by this, by the experience of being so radically different to their parents and. And this is, you had a very extreme form of that. Yeah, I did. You know, not that your parents weren't loving, because I know they because were. Because I was devoted to this institution that told me I was sick. Yeah. And evil. Yeah. Um, Which is never a... <laughs> never a good thing, is it? <laughs> not ideal. But, um... Uh, and I've said this, you know, I often say this, and people laugh, my friends say, you say that, but you'll never do it. <clears throat> well, maybe I might. You know, at some point, I, I, I do think that, um, see, most people, I think it's partly a function of my career that at the, the, at the age of 26, I was at the, you know, at the very top of, of, of the pecking order in a way. I mean, you know, I hate that kind of shit, but, and I wasn't, you know, but, you know, I was running a national magazine in a country I didn't even grow up in that was extremely before the internet when it was the only thing that really mattered and really did have influence. Um, and that's, that's, um, that's 22 years of being at the very sort of peak of, of one's own profession. Most, most people that happens later in life than they retire to keep that up until I'm 80 is, 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 is exhausting. Um, and so, uh, but also, I, I genuinely think the questions that I'm most exercised by now, at right now, are the questions we've talked about, about what God is and uh, whether we can know his love and whether, uh, and, and that, and, and, and the real Jesus. Have you, have you ever, you know about Jefferson's Bible, right? It's a good sure. place to end it, because there you have 
you have the confluence of the two of our positions. You have Jefferson, the great, the great deist uh, architect of the Enlightenment in the American Constitution and the separation of church and state. And you have the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And he went through and intuitively removed the bits he thought that other assholes had interpolated to make use of this man and cut, literally cut them out. And there's an exhibition right now at the Smithsonian. Oh, really? Yeah. I'll check that out. Of the, of, of, uh, of the original with his notes. Oh, wow. Um, and it used to be, it used to be deli- that version of the New Testament was given to every member of Congress. Wow, when did that happen? That, that was, I, I, you know, I need to remember, I don't know, I can't tell you off the top of my head, but it was used to be that would be what, that was what was given, which would be anathema to the fundamentalists of today. But it's interesting because... It so he just... thought reason and Jesus, even though he didn't believe in the divinity of Jesus, sure. um, uh, was completely compatible. But uh, just to, so I'm just thinking about what we've been talking about, and in a way, th- these three great elements to your identity, the Catholic part, the conservative part, and the gay part, you've had conflicts with all of them, but you will always know that in one of those great conflicts, the gay part, you redefined that conversation. And I've always, you know, I've got many reasons to be grateful to you personally, but I've always been grateful to you, even if I had never met you, that you did that fight, so I don't have to. I can get married now. And there are, whatever happens from now, you will always know that there are huge numbers of people who can get married now because you redefined that conversation. It took a lot of people to fight for it. And, you know, and that the conversation would have evolved in certain ways, I'm sure otherwise, but it wouldn't have evolved as quickly. It wouldn't have evolved as, you know, and a lot of people live and die in the time it takes for arguments to evolve. So very few, when I think, when I get, you know, depressed about intellectual life and you think, what's the point? These things never make a difference. Very few, you know, if I think about the intellectuals I really admire, very few of them get their Berlin Wall moment when they get to see, you know, they've they raged against something and they watch it fall and you have lived to see that and it happened so fast, you know, because of what you did. And I think, you know, that's a kind of happy moment to end on, but I think it's something you can be, you know, wherever it goes from here, you'll always have that and you'll always know that and that is an astonishing achievement. Thank you, Johan. I, um... I can't tell you how much it helps and has lifted me up to have you acknowledge that. And because it, it's, it's, in America in particular, I'm still semi-pariah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm not really, you know, uh, my role has not really been spoken of in that way yet. But maybe, but again, the point is that's, that's, not, that's not something I should be concerned about, you know? Um, because what matters is that it happened. Um, but thank you, because that's probably the highest compliment anybody can pay to someone whose job it is to think out loud. And uh, uh, but I I also do believe, however, um, that it was a strange catalyst of that and this ghastly plague that galvanized and intensified, and in some ways uh, accelerated a process. Um, but it also means that basically I, I it. it it's staggering how powerful telling the truth can be. And the power of virtue normal is that you recognise that it was true. I wasn't bullshitting you. You can tell that from the first sentence. Um, and you recognised it, and other people did, across the world. I mean, it's been translated into whatever. And that's, 
that's what I take from it. I take, I take from it that um, we should keep trying to tell the truth. And telling the truth is a lot harder than people understand. And it entails much more personal sacrifice. I mean, the truth. I don't mean... <laughs> I mean something really hard to admit. Um, and that's... I, I like to hope that the, the dish, which has been my sort of has been about trying to get to the truth of things as much as we can. And if, if we have mistaken the truth for a lie, to, to take responsibility for that um, and to account for it, understand it, and reform from it. Um, so if there was one... And this is the interesting end of, that, end of that fight with Hugh Hewitt when he was like, why don't you accept you know, the authority? And I said, because if God is not truth... Why should we believe in him?